Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Today's episode is brought to you by MetPro. Hey, do you want to improve your health but not sure where to start? With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is extremely difficult. I know it was for me until I found MetPro. The key is to understanding and mastering your metabolism. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert or if you want access to the tools their industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co, that's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. And hey, the Dose listeners will get up to one month free if you sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. More on MetPro later in this episode. On today's episode, Dr. Peter Bogosian. The first order of business is to just drill down on those terms. You know, what what do you mean by racist? And I do this in almost every conversation. What would it take for you to say they were a racist organization and they were not? Like, what would that look like? What would it look like to you if they weren't? Because if you don't do that, you would just give them a piece of evidence. Like, oh, here's an article written by an expert that says they're not, the Proud Boys are not racist. They'll say, well, that's just, they're ideologically captured too. That's bias. So then you have to set the conditions for the conversation before you have them, right? And in that context, the condition is, what would it take for you to change your mind about X? In philosophy, it's called the defeasibility question. I am now convinced that's the most important question anybody can ever ask themselves. I used to believe the question was, why do you believe that? I no longer believe that. Hey, welcome to The Dose, a show dedicated to deep and engaging conversations, highlighting individuals that are in the pursuit of authentic and courageous leadership who approach life with insatiable curiosity, bold action, and common sense in these divisive and uncommon times. It's my hope you take something away from each and every one of these conversations and apply it to your own life as we all intentionally attempt to become the best we can possibly be by living out our purpose and calling, committing to a life of service, and helping make this place better than we found it. You know, in our current political climate, it seems impossible to have a reasonable conversation with anyone who has a different opinion, whether you're online, in a classroom, an office, a town hall, or maybe you're just hoping to get through a family dinner with a stubborn relative. You know, dialogue shuts down when these perspectives clash. Heated debates often lead to insults and shaming, blocking any possibility of productive discourse. Everybody seems to be on a hair trigger, especially these days, and that's why I wanted to bring on today's guest, Dr. Peter Bogosian. He's an expert at dealing with this conundrum. His main focus is bringing the tools of professional philosophers to people in a wide variety of contexts. He has a teaching pedigree spanning more than 25 years, 30,000 students. He's taught in prisons, hospitals, public and private schools, seminaries, universities, Fortune 100 companies, and small businesses. His fundamental objective is to teach people like us to think through what often seems to be impossible and tractable problems. His primary research areas are critical thinking and moral reasoning. His doctoral research studies consisted of using the Socratic method to help prison inmates increase their critical thinking and moral reasoning abilities. He's a co-author of a book with James Lindsay on How to Have Impossible Conversation, a straightforward practical guide giving you conversational techniques that are necessary in today's divisive world. And that's why I brought him on, and that's what you're going to learn. 
Great takeaways in this conversation. Again, need a pen and a pad of paper for this one because you're going to learn some great stuff from the one and only Dr. Peter Bogosian here on The Dose. I'm all about, I don't understand, and I watched my parents get with people with different political backgrounds, Nixon Democrats, or I mean, Nixon Republicans and Kennedy Democrats, they were Jewish, they were right. Protestants, they gave each other hell, but they loved each other, right? They had these, right. they, they had normal conversations and it's been lost. And I don't know why free speech has to be partisan. But so anyway, I just want to thank you. for Yeah, my, my parents, I grew up the same thing, not only with my parents, my grandparents. I think my, my grandfather was the, on my, my mom's side was a Republican. But again, that, those terms meant things to, totally different yeah. today and, and then. And they're all immigrants to this country from Armenia and Greece and Italy. And they would have spirited conversations with my dad and other people who come over. And my parents, when I grew up, they talked to people. But we're having, we're seeing a clustering effect where not only are people not talking to other people, and I mean, even talking at all, but they're not even associating with people who have different political beliefs. And the problem is that that pushes you further and further into the confidence of your own beliefs. I mean, we see that in the university system now, mm -hmm. right? We've, they've called out, it's the, it's the whole first they came for, they've called out um, diverse voices. And now you see, and this is more pronounced, obviously, at some universities than others, but now you see radical far left identitarian politics becoming the norm, or it is the norm. And so everybody who doesn't subscribe to that is othered. They're, they're not just wrong, they're a bad person. And so it creates these little echo systems. And really, there, there's no polite way to say it, nor should, should one be polite about it. They're just ecosystems of delusion. Why has this happened? I mean, obviously, we, this has been a slow fade. This hasn't just happened overnight. I mean, you can trace it back. I don't know to how, how or far back, but this hasn't happened. Like I said, it's a slow fade. But why do you think is the root cause? Why this acceleration, particularly over the last eight years, it seems like to me. Um, when you when you say that, what's the this in that sentence? The academic stuff or the culture as a whole? I think the culture as a whole. I mean, obviously, the I mean, it's kind of seemed rooted in the academics. Maybe seem like where where it started. It's and maybe I'm wrong on that, but it's it's. No, you're not. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're absolutely correct. Why did it start there? Well, I just tweeted out a piece uh, about uh, how French intellectuals <laughs> ruin the West by Helen Pluckrose, which is a wonderful <laughs> piece. She's a former uh, uh, chief editor of Ariel magazine. Now Helen runs Counter Counterweight. How it started, it started in the universities and then it seeped out of the universities. Why it started, there's a lot of controversy about that. It's complicated. They, it's, you know, why do we have large, large scale organizational institutional capture? You can look at by certain uh, ideologies, far left ideologies rooted in identity politics. You can look at that in terms of the literature. You could look at it in terms of other themes in society. You could look at that mimetically as a kind of evolution where you could look at it in terms of why there's so many. There are so many ways to, to look at that. That seriously would be an entire podcast. And then people who would normally be solid bedfellows uh, have fundamental disagreements about how it started. Is it Marxist? Is it neo-Marxist? Is it you know the neoliberal? And what does that mean? And should it be labeled? I mean, it's a it's a huge thing. My what I'd like to do is to say, okay, now that virtually everybody except the lunatics controlling the asylum have agreed that this is a serious problem, what do we do about it? Right. How do we, and that's, that's maybe we can explore that today. That's something I've been thinking about a lot is the, the legitimacy crisis or often a legitimation crisis. And the philosopher Jürgen Habermas has written very elegantly about that. We have a complete crisis of 
confidence in our institutions and people don't trust our institutions, but they don't trust our institutions because they're not worthy of trust. Right. Right. Because our institutions are consistently failing us across the board. And so how do we regain that trust, particularly in, in an academic setting when ideologues have jobs for life and they're brokering absolutely no dissent whatsoever? Yeah, it seems like an impossible um, thing to, to conquer, an obstacle to do it. But again, like the Stoics say, the obstacle is the way, right? So there, we need to you know, approach their faceless obstacle head on. Does it start with the individual? I mean, even going back, I mean, I think I, all this stuff is brewing up inside of me and I see yeah, yeah. I'm talking to, you know, even my kids and we're having these arguments and it yeah. just gets derailed. And um, wh- yeah. how do we start it? I mean, how, how can I have my conversation even with my family members? How can I start to have these difficult conversations? That's a that's I've not that's not where I thought you were going to go with it, but that's great. Um, it's it's a very to diagnose the problem is extremely complicated because you have so many variables that that interact on each other. And I see this with my less so my kids because they they speak to me, but I see this with my my children's friends when I'll have a conversation with something with them about something and. America is horrible, terrible. Like there's nothing redeeming about it from the fa- endless wars. I mean, I get the whole the shtick of racist and the patriarchy and <coughs> excuse me, tell my cough. I think I have COVID, but I'm pretty isolated <laughs> up here. So I don't think so. Um, um, so, so, so the question of, of how to have a conversation about it, this, that really is an impossible conversation because there are so many values that are embedded in systems that we teach our kids that how do we, disambiguate those words, explain those words. Let me just give you a a very quick example of the nature of the problem, if I may. So I was having a conversation with someone recently about the Proud Boys, and they were claiming that the the Proud Boys are a racist organization. And I said, "That's, that's not true. They're not a racist organization. And then I gave examples of members who were minorities, et cetera. And then the individual with whom I was having a conversation um, went to Google and she Googled it. And of course, the SPLC comes up and it says basically they're a hate group, et cetera, et cetera. And there are claims of, of, of racism in those searches. And so now I'm in an impossible situation because if I say, excuse me, if I say the SPLC uh, Southern Poverty Law Center has been ideologically captured. You know, woke people control it. They lost a um, a, a, a very significant settlement. I think it was in the millions, if memory serves me correctly, with Majit Nawaz. If I mention this, it seems like I'm a conspiracy theorist, right? Right. So, so if I say, no, no, that's been captured, she'll say, look, this is a, a reputable, vulnerable uh, organization, and and now you're telling me to not trust. So you're t- every time I bring up a piece of evidence, you're you're telling me that this can't be trusted. So it's really it places you in an impossible situation, which is the other problem with the legitimacy crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Is because you don't know who to turn to, and then people turn to conspiracies, right? So so the, the first order of business is to just drill down on those terms. You know what what do you mean by racist? Like mm-hmm. what? And so th- this is key. The older you get, the more you realize it's essential for you to save time in your life and your conversations because time becomes increasingly precious. So you have to then start, and I do this in almost every conversation, and I do this on social media, I do this everywhere. What would it take 
for you to say they were a racist organization and they were not? Like, what would that look like? What would it look like to you if they weren't? Because if you don't do that and you and then you, you would just give them a piece of evidence, like, oh, here's an article written by an expert mm-hmm. that says they're not the Proud Boys are not racist. They'll say, well, that's just they're ideologically captured too. That's bias. Yeah. So then you have to set the conditions for the conversation before you have them, right? And in that context, the condition is what would it take for you to change your mind about X? In philosophy, it's called the defeasibility question. I am now convinced that's the most important question anybody can ever ask themselves. I used to believe the question was, why do you believe that? I no longer believe that. I love that. It goes back to you were setting ourselves. We, I think we assume that we need to become armed with facts, right? We come there lawyered up, ready. And, and that's actually one of the worst things we can do is start presenting facts because it just puts yourself, puts the other person in a defensible position. They can always find something that can refute the fact, even if it's true okay. or not, right? All right, let's drill down that. So there was a, I responded to this. There's been a lot of literature saying that it's called the backfire effect. When you present someone with a piece of information, they hunker down. There's been subsequent literature showing that that was a unicorn effect, or it's just, it doesn't, it's not, it's not true and it's not operative. And I've been reading that literature and there's one, you have to drill deeper. And the deeper drill in that is, and I I tweeted someone, uh, someone, I can't remember his name. I ordered his book, but I... I don't, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. I've been very busy, busy fighting a culture war over here. <laughs> um, you have to drill down on that. And the drilling down on that is the more emotional valence it has when someone's presented with evidence, the less likely it is that they'll change their mind. But if you're talking about something innocuous, like a distance from a tree and, you, you know, and that nobody really cares about, uh, or something that truly nobody cares about. I suppose the distance in the tree is a bad example because if you if you're trying to dispute the property boundary, but but if you're not if if you have something like you know the the diameter of a hamburger bun is it Wendy's <laughs> or McDonald's? Right. Nobody, nobody you cares. can present anybody with any evidence for there, and there's no going to be no hunkering down in your position. But the more something is emotional and tied to an identity concern or, or is identity level salience the more it will invoke a defensive posture and you'll solicit the backfire effect. Yeah. Is that clear? Yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, if we're, you see that obviously in, in all the things that are emotional hot buttons, I mean, critical race theory, for example, right? And if you're arguing with somebody like, well, or even saying, well, the, the, the founding of this country was founded by nothing but a bunch of white races. It was, it was you know, founded um, in slavery and, and – and right. you're like, well, wait a second. You know, these were imperfect men that were going towards a, a an ideal. Even if you try to present the facts of like, you know, you know, John Adams was a, a huge abolitionist. You know, he didn't like slavery, but he knew he had to keep the union together. Right? He had the bigger picture. You try to have a conversation. Nobody cares. See, right? that's because a fact. Nobody knows who John Adams is. I would never present that exactly. to someone in a conversation. Right? Yeah. There's no point to it. Not only is there no point to it. Someone's going to hunker down. Exactly. So that's why when you start with the defeasibility question right off the right from the beginning, and my my editor of How to Have Impossible, the publisher told me to not use the word defeasibility too big. They said disconfirmation. Uh, so no, was, I'm sorry. It was my 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 editor told me to do that. So a disconfirmation question. What what would disconfirm that belief? What is, is there a piece of evidence that would confirm that, disconfirm that? Is it a feeling that you would have? Is it an expert telling you that? Like, what, what would it take for that to be, to be disconfirmed? And then once you understand the disconfirmation criteria, then the conversation is much easier. And if you've also saved yourself a 
ton, ton of time. time. Yeah. Yeah. So if somebody comes to you and says, you know, hey, the country was founded with, you know, a bunch of white slave owner racists, uh, the defeasibility question would be what? Ah, well, well, let's let's before I answer that question, this is very important and it's 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 so hard to explain to people. So let me see if I do a good job. If I am unclear, let me know. Mm-hmm. So the problem with asking what's your evidence for that or why do you believe that? What's your evidence for that? Why do you believe that? This is what happens cognitively in with, with somebody. If I say, well, why do you believe that? Then they just spout a litany of mm-hmm. people who were in positions or offices of power. Um, and then they'll uh, say they, you know, depending on how knowledgeable are they own this many slaves and maybe they know the names of the slaves, et cetera. <laughs> so basically when you've asked someone that question, what you've done to them is they hear their own voice cite the evidence. So they become even more confident of of the things that they believe when they listen to themselves, cite the evidence. And the more knowledgeable about it it is, the more you've cemented in the book I called doxastic closure, belief closure, the more you've you've, um, shoved them into belief certitude. So even asking someone, why do you believe that? Or what's your evidence for that? is the, one of the worst possible questions you can ask. And I realize that's a heresy. <laughs> really, that's, nobody likes to hear that, but it's, it's, it's true. I mean, look, you can even just, I was listening to a podcast with Steven Pinker about his new book. And he said, you can just try it, not in relation to this, something else. And so try it yourself. Next time you have a conversation with someone who has a, a strongly held belief at different, different conversations, ask people, why do you believe that? Boom. And if you ask the disconfirmation question after that, it's much more difficult. But if you ask the disconfirmation question first, almost nobody asks anybody disconfirmation questions. So in other words, you're not asking somebody to drill down into their own reasons for belief. It's like a little wedge. It's like a momentary wedge in one's belief architecture where you can say, okay, so what would it take to change your mind? Mm. And then they start thinking and the other thing when you start thinking about that is it's not well rehearsed most of the time. Right. Right. But the, but the other thing, why do you believe that is very well rehearsed? Well, why do you believe abortion is murder or why do you believe it's free choice right. or why do you believe the death penalty is good or right? it doesn't matter what it is. We've all rehearsed this. And the more you talk to people, the more you practice it and the better you get and the more you become convinced. Right. So that's why the disconfirmation question right from the get go. Well, once you understand what the art, you have to understand what people are talking about yeah. to do that. So we kind of jumped in, in the middle, like, you know, you got to listen, you got to ask questions about the meanings of words, et cetera, et cetera. But that's like a big technique. That's that's uh, early middle. Well, yeah, that's a great. I mean, even when you ask that question, it just it just it stops the gears for, for a moment. Right. Correct. Because it, it, it's not rehearsed, like you said. And you're just like, oh, well. And the goal, I, I think it's important too to state the goal. I guess some of our goals for these conversations, if I'm having difficult, if I want to jump in the arena and have difficult or impossible conversations, the goal isn't necessary to change their position or their mind, right? The, the ultimate goal is to just, I mean, maybe we both walk away with a different perspective. I mean, and that would be a win, right? I mean, but I mean... That sounds kind of milk toast when you're trying to fight a culture war, I guess. Because if I'm if I'm yeah. engaged in a culture war, am I going okay? I'm here to because 
some of it's gone so far over the cliff. I do need to change people's minds. I don't know. Does that make sense? Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But so, so this is really important. So one of the first things that we say in how to have possible conversations is what's your goal? Yeah. What is the goal? And I'm, I'm writing a, a, a children's book now, or uh, it's called a middle, middle readers, eight to 10 years old. Um, the book is, the, the manuscript is currently aimed at 10 year olds. But anyway, um, I was reading Jordan Peterson's letter on Barry Weiss's Substack, and I actually quoted it here when you said that, because I'm going to use part of this for the book. He says, um, ask him questions and real questions too, not those that only lead in the direction that I wanted to go, not those that somehow made my point. Um, and I think that the part of the key is you have to be sincere in the questions that you ask. And right. the, the more you're interested in leading someone to a goal, Okay, so this is where it gets very complicated. The more you're interested <laughs> in leading someone to a goal, the less likely it is that you'll be effective unless they're, as Wittgenstein said of Socrates' interlocutors, they're, I think he called them boobs. You know, they're not <laughs> the smartest tools in the draw. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to ask questions about what you want to know the answer. You have to kind of plumb their epistemology to figure out why they believe things. And most of the time, you'll have a if you do this enough, you'll have a revelation along the way. And that, and it's that with um, highly charged issues, people don't believe it on the basis of evidence. In other words, they don't mm -hmm. arrive at their belief because they have a rigorous epistemology. They arrive at the belief for moral or for moral reasons or tribal reasons, or as I told Rob, Robbie George from Princeton for the sense of belonging. And so um, it's really important to know that you you might be thinking about you're having a conversation about religion or something. This is what we we tried to punch across in the app Atheos about having conversations with people of different religions and uh, spiritual beliefs, supernatural beliefs, etc. You're having a conversation on one level, but they're having a conversation. Right. You're having a conversation about reason, evidence, and argument, and what would it take for a rational person to be justified in a belief? And they're having a totally different conversation with you. Totally different. They're having a conversation about, you know, what it means for their family if if they voice a different agreement or what it means to them to be a good person if they don't believe this. And often when we have conversations, people forget that. Does yeah. That, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense because it speaks to the power of of not wanting to get ostracized from the tribe. I mean, I think that's that's genetically encoded in us, right? We don't want to get <laughs> because we can't survive by ourselves in the wilderness. So that's in, that's in us. And so yeah, I mean, that's why we stay silent and so we don't so we don't get ostracized and and but it to your point going back to what you said, it's so critical to understand that people believe things because of the moral relativity or the relativity or it's important to them, the sense of belonging. I mean, a great example that just struck me as you're saying that was the concept of evolution, right? Even though you've got a, a gazillion things, so many facts on evolution, right? There's, I mean, there's a huge percentage of people that don't believe in it and it's based on a sense of belonging and that moral relativism that you're talking about, right? Yeah. yeah but here's the rub that nobody wants to talk about. It also is, uh, operative, the same principle is operative uh, if someone believes in evolution. Most of the people right. who believe in it, they couldn't tell you the first thing about it. N literally nothing. That's right. They, they, you know, the litmus question I ask is if evolution is true, why didn't monkeys develop into humans? I mean, it's a pretty rudimentary question that anybody should be able to answer who, who's looked into evolutionary biology in a little bit. But the idea is that most people can't answer that. And then I use that as a wedge to undermine their certainty. Excuse me, but the key in that is that 
it's not just the people who deny evolution. It's everybody about right. just about everything. Everything. And so we need to be more thoughtful about why we believe things. We need to be more honest with ourselves and we need to develop tools and skill sets and mechanisms to help us um, align our confidence in the belief with the evidence that we have for the belief. Yeah. Is it, it just struck me as thinking about this. Do you think a lot of this is rooted in, in, if you strip it all away, is rooted in fear? I mean, why would we re- replace objectivity and balance with ideology and activism? And to me, I keep going back to that it has to be rooted in fear at some point. Fear of being ostracized or fear. I don't know. Yeah, fear. There's good literature in, in the um, religious psychology literature about that. But I think that the issue is not a question of fear or who's afraid of water. How does fear, um, you know, tr- trying to f- come up with formulas like the more tenacity the, mm. with what holds a belief, uh, you know, the more fearful. I think that's a mistake. I think we need to look at the brain as the hardware and the software is what comes in. And, you know, we think of evolution and people have written about this, the selfish gene, et cetera, Dawkins, is, many people, Jerry Coyne is evolutionary, retired evolutionary biologist from University of Chicago have written about this extensively. We think of biology in terms of a physical process, but biology is also, you know, ideas that affect us cognitively. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's, it's to understand why people believe things you have to look at it in terms of ideology and and i think it's very helpful in terms of hardware and software and what the software is that goes in i mean look clearly we have people and people who who live in different areas of the world who do not choose their beliefs right mexico city is filled with catholics saudi arabia's muslims and iran you know iran you have the shia sunni division you have you know different beliefs but we know, this is another thing no one wants to talk about. We know that those beliefs cannot both be true, right? There are sewers in the Quran about Jesus not being crucified, right? But that's a fundamental Christian belief is that Jesus was crucified. Or Mormons, for example, you know, um, about Muhammad, about uh, Joseph Smith being being a prophet. But yet Mormons believe in their sewers in the Quran about this is the last prophet. So we know that some people are wrong about their beliefs. Some people have to be wrong, but the question is, why? what is operative here? And how did they get those beliefs? Well, they got those beliefs from a combination of a lot of things, culture, tradition, language, history, et cetera. And so I think looking at it, you know, subspecies eternitatis are from on high. You know, I hate to say that I'm not fond of the expert, but the God's eye view and saying, okay, these people believe this, these people believe this, these people, have, everybody has their own cultural myopia. So maybe it's time for me to look in the mirror and ask, what elements of my belief are less subjective than I think that they are and more subject to the cultural vagaries than I'd like to admit. Yeah. And that gets to the, I mean, what you just said there, it strikes me. I don't know. I'm just, this is surfacing here, but it strikes me. Isn't that the, at the, at what makes the United States experiment so great? What you just said right there. I mean, that's at the core of why, this experiment has been so successful, but is at the same time is being lost by people don't understand that, that, that's that, that elegance of what you said there, that subtlety is to me is the power of what makes this experiment so great. And that's why it's so dangerous of being lost because of that, the ability to sit there and say to yourself with an empathy, it's about empathy, right? To sit there and understanding and an honest assessment of myself going, okay, what, what are these, what can I learn from this? You know, 
how can I put myself in this person's position as much as uh, as a jackass as this person seems to me at the moment and how wrong they are? There's power behind that, right? There's power behind I, – I, I got so many thoughts jumbling, but that's like the essence of the melting pot. Does that make sense? It, yeah, so here's the way I look at it, and, and I really wish I could tell my, my, my religious conservative friends this. I mean, in fact, I'm, I'm going to be doing an event with Hunger, in, in Hungary with Rob Dreher, uh, author of Live Not By Lies. I've become very friend, friendly with Rod. Here's how I look at the American experiment in the context of the conversation. I think the most important frame for this is cognitive liberty. Yeah. This is a country where people have freedom of belief. You can believe anything you want to believe. Right. And you should be able to pursue by your own lights whatever whatever floats your boat if you will and so cognitive liberty for me means people having the freedom to believe what they want mm-hmm. to think what they want to explore the options they want you know the, the yep. normal caveats also apply you know well, you know, killing people and etc cetera, etc cetera. but within the american experiment the thing that i see eroded in that is that we now have a group of people who um, are hellbent on telling people what to think and yep. on um, telling people how they should believe. And if they don't, imposing punishments, cancellations, sanctions against people for not believing according to the orthodoxy. Now, mind you, not only does the orthodoxy have no evidence behind it, the evidence is actually against it. Mm-hmm. It's a conspicuously naked ideological movement that has unfortunately um, ideologically captured our academic institutions and many of our other institutions, much of the media is CNN is a total nightmare, MSNBC, much of our institutions have been captured by this uh, dominant moral orthodoxy right now. And so all of that telling people what to believe, having certain narratives that one has to ascribe to. And if you don't believe it, it's not just that you don't, you're lacking a piece of information, but it's that you're a bad person. And so that to me is a stain on the American experiment. Yes. For sure. But, but they want that. They want us. They want to destroy the American experiment. That's the thing that's just mind boggling about this. Yeah, I don't. And, and because they think that the system itself is inherently unjust. Tanhasi Coates, Ibram Kendi, constantly reeling about that. Like any disparity in outcomes has to be due to a racist system. And Jason Hill just is a wonderful book. The philosopher, really, really great guy. I've become very friendly with him uh, about that. Um, and other people have spoken eloquently about that as well. And so the problem is that when you've opted out of the rules of evidence and your uh, main focus or your main thrust is to push forward moral conclusions, then everything else drops by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the majority of the people think like we're thinking that there's a, there is a true silent majority and it's just that the voices of the, the, because you got the universities and the media are the loudest voices or is it, or are we the minority? Well, it's a really good question. The, the first problem with the question is that there's no way to tell because they've created a culture, particularly in the university, yeah. they've created a culture of fear so that nobody will very few people are afraid to speak honestly and openly because they understand the consequences. You know, right before the pandemic, I was in the, you know, when I was my, my former employee, some of my colleagues would come up to me. I didn't even know these people. And they would literally lean into me and whisper, thank you so much. Right. Thank you. 
I appreciate it. And I'd always say the same thing. Well, okay, well, why don't you make a public statement? Oh, no, no, no. I'm, you know, I have to, I'm, go, I'm either going up for tenure or I don't want to be punished or I don't want to be, you know. So, so we've created a culture of fear that makes it very difficult to know what people actually believe. But the other thing is that the Overton window has shifted so much mm-hmm. at this point that things that used to be utterly unthinkable are yeah, truly or- unthinkable three years ago, like literally three years ago are now institutionalized. They're now normative. Like, so true. you know, the, especially in the realm of medicine or in, in the realm of diversity hiring or equity based decisions. And so, um, no, I think that, I think that people have been, again, the Overton window has moved and Mm -hmm. people believe things. Now, the vast majority of them, they may not be true believers into the genuine core of the ideology, but they believe enough of it at this point, like a, a, um, a series of Venn diagrams. They believe enough of it that it's that it's really metastasized onto their consciousness. Yeah, I, I even, my oldest daughter's 25 and then I got a 22-year-old that, um, my 22-year-old's really bought into a lot of this and very difficult conversation. I mean, I, she's estranged herself from the family because, because of this. Right. And, um, but I just I I see in them sometimes this kind of um, how do I phrase this that they're they're moral certainty yeah well there's, yeah there's moral certainty that but they 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 would be more comfortable with being told what to do as opposed to unlimited f- freedom and risk does that make sense like they're more comfortable right. with right. with an authoritarian saying to do this as long right. as I can be safe and comfortable as opposed to. Right. And that's what people don't understand who don't buy into this. They don't understand how fragile our systems are, how fragile the democracy is. Mm-hmm. And that's not even mentioning external threats on social media, external threats from obviously Russia and China. But I'm curious back to your daughter. I don't want to get too personal if you don't want me to. No, what, what is her main point of contention? Is it that you're white? Is it that you're heterosexual? What, what, what's the, is it that you're a man? Is it that you participate in the patriarchy? Is it that you have inherent privilege? What is her main problem with you? Yeah, uh, patriarchy. Um, just the fact that you know, I mean, you know, I, I talk about the. Fa- I mean, I'm s- the founding of the country. I was in the Marine Corps, right? And so I'll be, I was in the military. So she just more about the patriarchy and and how men control everything, and that they were intentional about keeping you know, being oppressors, particularly being white and male. Okay. So here's, here's a question that I would ask her. I would say to her on a scale from one to 10, we write about this in how to have a possible mm-hmm. conversation. How much of a patriarchy do you think the United States is now ask her to put it on a scale and say, if the 1950s were a seven, what is the United States now in 2022? And then my my feeling is let's see what she see what she mm-hmm. says. But my feeling is if she believes that, she also has a set of unmoored assumptions about the world. For example, what is a man? What is a woman? What is whiteness? So it's not that she harbors this this one belief that may or may not be, depending on how she answers the, the question to put her belief in her skill. It's that she her belief life participates in a set in an ideology which is now morally fashionable. Mm-hmm. That ideology itself is just, it's, it's capricious. It's not, it's just, it's not linked. It's not rooted in reality. 
Right. But right. I would ask you that question because it's that that would tell you what questions you have to ask after that. You know, how, how much is the and if she says she doesn't know, you know, you can ask Saudi Arabia. Like, let's say that Saudi Arabia is an eight on a scale from one to ten. What's the U.S.? Now, if she says nine. OK, she's totally delusional. Like she is operating in right. a land, like so then your conversation and your work becomes far more than that's a truly impossible conversation. Right. Now, you have some people like John McWhorter, for example, who argue that you just you just simply can't talk to these people. They're too they're too deluded and they're too brainwashed. I don't agree with that. Um, I think you can. And, and I think that there's sufficient evidence. Jeff Miller from the University of New Mexico has a wonderful conversation with someone from Antifa. But um, I think it is possible to have conversations, but the, to use a, uh, something from gaming, I'm not a gamer, but it puts the conversation into hard mode right away, mm -hmm. just immediately into hard mode. Somebody is harboring deep-seated delusions with moral valence about the nature of reality. Everybody they know in their peer group teaches it. Um, and, and they have what they think is evidence from peer review literature, which is actually not evidence. It's, it's just, um, it's um, pretentious charlatans have uh, more or less hijacked entire fields and are making shit up. Yeah. And we'll be right back after this message. Hey, you're like me, you're wanting to improve your health, but never sure where to start. With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is difficult. I know it has been for me until I found MetPro. According to MetPro, the key to seeing results is mastering your metabolism. At MetPro, your metabolism isn't some mystery. It's a data point. Armed with hard science, MetPro is your health concierge, delivering one-on-one -on -one coaching and personalized nutrition and fitness regimes. It's not just about weight loss. MetPro's coaches provide business professionals, athletes, weekend warriors, and everyone in between the support and education they need to live a healthier life. MetPro's team of experts has worked with the most recognizable name in sports, entertainment, and business. They've helped thousands of individuals like you and me transform their bodies by hacking their metabolism. I've been using MetPro for five weeks, and I couldn't be more thrilled. I finally feel like I got it figured out. This onboarding program was great. The intuitive app I can't say enough of. It helps me plan my meals, gives me a shopping list. I'm eating the foods I enjoy. And most importantly, I got increased energy and I'm seeing weight loss. I couldn't be more thrilled with MetPro. Recently, they launched a new tool that allows you to experience the same science and tailored strategy that their experts use. Look, this isn't food logging. It's not a tool or a workout app. The MetPro app allows you to track, analyze, and learn what your metabolism responds to best. And that's the key. That's the thing I've never had before until now. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want to access the tools that industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co slash dose. That's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. Best of all, listeners will get up to one month free when they sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. And now back to the show. I'm just thinking about some of our conversations here. The one of the more, more frustrating one was around the critical race theory thing. And what I, it's hard for me to understand. I'm a student of history and, and I'm all for, and what I think a lot of people who, when, when you say you're against critical race theory, they say that you're against the real true history of the United States or yeah. the world. And I'm like, no, I'm like, I say, tell it all. I say, tell it the warts, all, everything. And every, most people that I know that think like me want all of history told. The good, the bad, yeah, the ugly, so, because what happens when you tell all right. of it, to me, that's, that's even a more remarkable story of our experiment, right? That it's been this this path towards, you know, despite all this, we've, we've crushed all these things and we've kept making progress. Anyway, I cut you off there. But. Well, no, that's important. The, the, the question there is, I mean, there are multiple questions. Also, uh, Stephen Pinker's last two 
books would be good for that about the better angels and Shermer has something about that and the moral arc is, is good but uh, you know the, the question is well why do we need critical race theory to teach to teach that like what is it that critical race theory does give, gives us and the answer if she knows about it at all she probably does is it it will give you a critical lens uh, this is take us far afield but the key in those things is never to to input your opinion, it's always to ask questions. And that's the, mm-hmm. that's one of the things Socrates did, right. to, to see if people basically agreed with themselves. Most people, they don't agree with themselves because they don't have the slightest idea of why they believe what they believe, like, like the people who accept the facts of evolution. They don't really know that they're the facts of evolution. Right. They, they think they are because smart people and, and there's evidence in peer-reviewed literature, but you can take the same thing isomorphically to people who believe that the derangement of, of critical race theory or um, almost anything with the word ending in studies, they think that they have evidence. Their mentors and teachers and professors uh, have taught them this. It's in the literature. So then they develop uh, a certainty based upon what they think is evidence, and then they walk around and believe in this stuff. I mean, it's it's a truly, truly difficult problem. And I'm going to add one more layer to this that I mentioned before. Um, I don't mean to unnecessarily complicate the conversation. No, you're not but, complicated at all. This is fascinating. Okay. I, I think it's important to talk about my friend Faisal Al-Mutar from Ideas Beyond Borders. He's become very, very, I've been friendly with him for a long time. We've been very, very close friends. He was telling, so Ideas Beyond Borders translates um, texts into uh, Arabic and, and Faisal's uh, from Iraq. Faisal's the most American person I've ever met in my life. He's a true, truly is a, a, an American hero, in my, my opinion. He's an amazing life story. Um, but he was telling me that uh, mostly China and somewhat Russia fund BLM uh, stations in the Middle East and fund them. He said, you should talk to him about this. It's really interesting. And with the idea of you don't have to fire a bomb, there are no weapons, you can just sow division in American cities and among Americans. Right. So whatever they believe about critical race theory or whatever they believe about the patriarchy or what have you, that conversation, again, to use the gaming analogy, it's, or metaphor, it's, it's, it's already put in hard mode because now you have additional sorts of influences weighing on people's deliberative capacity and and their fundamental understanding of what the nature of the problem is while it's snowing here it's just totally totally beautiful so uh, i guess steering the conversation towards what do we do because if i look at it in university it's it seems so overwhelming it what's kind of thinking in my gut is like well why even try to fix it why don't we just why don't we build just start something different. Totally. Thank you so much for saying it. So I, so this, so I've given up, I've given up this point. And this is where I disagree with some people. Like I mentioned Pinker twice before in the conversation, I guess he's coming again, you know, Pinker and other people, you know, they're, they're uh, renowned public intellectuals and they're very established establishment. So they, they believe in the universities. They believe that the universities can be, um, um, redeemed might not be the right word. Um, Steered back towards objectivity and balance, you know, like what the yeah, original idea yeah, of university. That, yeah, I mean, you know, and then on the other side, you have people like myself, Neil Ferguson. I've spoken to Neil extensively about this. Ion, you have other people who believe that those universities are redeemable, and there are ideologues who have jobs for life in those. Right, and so that's one of the reasons why. 
Barry Weiss and Heather Hying, you mentioned her before, and uh, Neil and other people are starting a new university in Austin, the University of Austin. And make no, uh, no doubt about it, um, the enemies of civilized society are not particularly happy about this. <laughs> you know, Antifa has vandalized the buildings, et cetera, et cetera. But, but you, you know, I, I now, I do not believe, I used to believe when I was Pollyanna, I used to believe that the universities were capable of fixing themselves. I no longer believe that. Mm. Uh, but I'm not, by the same token, you know, the new weapon of the 2020s is defunding. Defund this, defund that, defund that. I want to make my own thing. Yeah. By the way, if anybody listening to this wants to do something and they're, like you said, they're scared and they don't know what to say, just don't don't fund your alma mater. Yeah. It should be the simplest ask in the world. Just don't give money to the people who are supporting this. The, the university you went to, the college you went to, even a few years ago, is not the same college you said. Mm-hmm. Just should be literally the simplest ask in the world. Give it to the Humane Society instead. Adopt a dog. Do, I mean, I don't know. Feed somebody in Syria or whatever. But the larger point is... Um, we're trying to build something new and we're trying to build the university of Austin. And so while and it's a university based on free speech, open exchange, classical texts, things that I personally value. And I think mm-hmm. that are extremely important. Uh, um, the uh, hiring process is in the basis of merit, not in the basis of diversity. I think I heard, um, I think I heard uh, just mentioned his name, Jason D Hill say there are 10,000 people with philosophy PhDs, I mean, you have to fact check this. I heard it's on um, his podcast with Michael Sharma. And uh, there are only 138 of those people who are African-Americans. So there are only so many African-Americans to go around in terms of like, if you want to have a diversity hiring matrix. So, or, or like, as I mentioned, I emailed you the rules that my mm-hmm. former university is now, you know, they're promoting on the basis of something other than merit, which itself, again, lends to the legitimation crisis. That's a kind of type of legitimacy in the system. Anytime someone is promoted on the basis of something other than merit. Okay, so this is the huge, so this is a huge uh, area. But you can avoid all of that. And that's what the University of Austin is trying to do. So equity, for example, all of those things are arbitrary, but merit is pretty straightforward. Right. You just look at you disagree or agree with certain you know metrics should be, but it's pretty straightforward. You don't have to say, okay, well, this person is this, you know, like Harvard was sued for, for Kenny Yu has some, uh, XU has some great stuff about this, um, was sued for uh, increasing the requirements for African, for uh, Asian Americans, you know, that is institutional racism against Asian Americans. Well, how many points should we increase? No, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It's just, is somebody qualified? And um, what what do those qualifications look look like? And then boom. So I'm pretty excited about the University of Austin. Sorry, that was a long thing. No, that's a a content dump. That's fascinating. I guess, I mean, I'm so ignorant to how one starts at university, but what what is the major um, hurdle? to do that money 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 yeah i'm not i'm just a founding faculty member with uh, ayan and uh, kathleen stock who's uh, had a meteoric rise uh, as of late she's a, has some fascinating things about gender and identity and uh, women's only spaces um I, I don't really know how one starts a university except you need an you needed a tremendous amount of money that's one thing i definitely know 
But it seems like there are people, particularly in Texas, that would have deep pockets and would, would kind of get behind this idea of, sure. of objectivity and balance. Because I think the vast majority of people like myself, and I know that the circles I run around with, we would hunger for that. I would love to send my kid to a school where sure. they study the well. classics, you know, study the classics. So Joe Lonsdale from Texas is, is sponsoring that. Here's the other thing that that almost no one talks about, but I think I'm going to do a video series for my Substack about it with Lyle Asher, Dr. Lyle Asher from Lewis and Clark. He has an amazing series, just parenthetically, coming out um, about uh, how colleges of education became woke. One thing that people don't understand is that there's an accreditation racket. And I used to be a member of the University of Phoenix, and I saw this firsthand. The accreditation, like very few people actually understand the process of accreditation that schools go through, what it means, and what the accountability means. Uh, and so I'd like, I think it's important at some point to talk about that and whether or not you should have a school that you're trying to build something new. Do you buy into the existing uh, accrediting apparatus? Like, do you? Or do you try to just totally build something new? I mean, I, I, I have my own belief about that because you also want to give the, the degree gravitas. Right. But the problem is that the accrediting agencies just give the illusion of gravitas. They don't actually, they're, they're not held responsible for anything. They, they don't confer any gravitas at all. If, you, if a school graduates people who are functionally illiterate, there's no consequence for the accrediting For the agencies. credit, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like in the, the realm of like um, coaching, like life and leadership coaches like myself. I'm, I had one person that had all the accreditations possible, and I said, oh, I got to get this. And she's like – she goes, yeah, but who, who certifies the certifiers, <laughs> right? And so, you know, you, you're – Correct. I'm just as certified as this person with all these. And so that's yeah. that's what we're talking about here is how do it's we give it gravitas? Yeah, yeah. It's a big scam. It's a big scam that everybody's brought, bought into. And again, it wouldn't be a scam if there was something – if there wasn't a lack of legitimacy. Yeah. If the accreditors actually did something and could be held responsible and lose their accreditation on the base, then we have, could have that conversation on top of what those metrics would look like. And, you know, to what, to what degree does ideology factor into the accreditation process? Mm -hmm. I mean, we could talk about that. It's another conversation, yeah. but the basic idea is we're trying to, build a new institution, University of Austin. I'll te I'm teaching there in June for a month. And uh, other people are trying to do so. Uh, our other people are building, like Stephen Blackwood is building Ralston College in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, you see, you also see the uh, more people now are homeschooling their kids. There's been a meteoric rise in that. And my we can talk about why basically, but the, the bottom line is people don't like conservatives and moderates, independent centrist people and people with no wings, you know, not left wing, not right wing, people who just want their kids to have reading, writing, arithmetic, the basics. Um, these are the sorts of people who are alarmed and even horrified by what their kids are learning in school. And they're increasingly going to homeschool. Uh, yeah. yeah. Homeschooling their kids, but back to the university of Austin. So there's going to be a, a forbidden courses, in which people will talk about, I think Ayan's going to teach about, Ayan Hersili is going to teach about Islam and her experiences. And uh, she's written some really uh, um, books that made an indelible impact on me. And I think Kathleen Stock might teach about, um, you know, women's only spaces. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to teach the very beginning of that. 
so people won't be thrown into the end of the pool. How do you ask a Socratic question? How do you focus on epistemology? What do you do if you're offended by an idea? Um, what are good questions to ask? What does evidence for the belief look like? You know, what do you do if you're angry when you hear some of these ideas? Mm -hmm. So it's going to be in the beginning of each class, and then they're going to then they're going to be thrown into the deep end. <laughs> yeah, I think, and I'm, I made a commitment to myself this year to, to to really get back into Socrates and 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 learn the Socratic method because there, to me, the answer into having these conversations is that I'm I'm shifting away from, like you said, presenting the facts. I. I've been on that journey for a long time, but it's it's so easy to default to it. I think it, it's easy to just lawyer up and get presented with facts and it just gets derailed. Right. I want to get good at asking great questions in those heated moments, right? I think that's the key because that's when the – to me, it's all about empathy. And I think that's where the answer to a lot of this is, is, is when each side can see that there's another – I mean, we, how many times – have you gone somewhere? Have you gone? And if you travel the world, I mean, particularly if you've gone to other countries, you see it, right? And you see the perspective, you see what's going on. You just, you just see the world through a whole different lens. And I just wish people would do that. And they, I don't know. Yeah. So does Socratic questioning, I, you know, I'm big fan of the Republic. I reread the Republic every few years. Um, and there's some great examples I mean, just of a Socratic attitude, you know, the mm -hmm. Mino has some stuff with the slave boy and the and math and um, you, you, you just can't go wrong reading those classic texts. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people, uh, if you want more Nick Smith from from again, from Lewis and Clark has written some great stuff about that. Vlastos is the is the uh, big guy. I've written a lot of I don't even know how many peer reviewed articles. If you go to my Google Scholar page, you can see that. And so I've tied, for example, in a piece for the philosophy of education, I've tied the Socratic method to critical thinking skills, and oh, how cool. to improve your critical thinking. And, and there's just a lot of stuff that's that's been written, but I would definitely start which they're going to do at the University of Austin as well with primary source text, primary text. And then once you kind of get your feel for those. It's kind of like a great books approach, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and I would read the secondary or tertiary material. Yeah. So the Republic is what you'd suggest to start with. Is that what you mean about? Oh, the yeah. 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 And if you want to see like a contemporary that applied in a contemporary context, Anthony Magna Bosco has some wonderful videos on YouTube and they're free. Read Nice Wonder has some, some great videos too, but it's Magna Bosco, M-A-G-N-A-B-O-S-C-O. Okay. Um, and so you can see the the Socratic method as it's been. It's, you can look at that as a skeleton, and over time we've put flesh on flesh on it. And so now it's from psychology, from applied epistemology, from hostage negotiations. My my book was about from cult exiting. Um, we've put flesh on that, and we've taken those timeless techniques and um, um, we've just augmented them with the with the best available evidence. I love it. Well, I've been, as we're getting kind of near the end here, I wanted to, you know, highlight your uh, Substack, which I subscribed to last month. I've really been enjoying that. Really nice work on that. And the little fast, little quick little videos. What what are you hoping to accomplish? What is the intent behind um, the Substack, Beyond Woke? So be, the intent Beyond Woke with the one minute words is to help people who are not immersed in the space, who are not don't have extensive academic experience who just want to figure out, Oh my God, like I'm at my son's school or my daughter's school or what have you. And then everybody's talking about equity. 
Nobody even heard of the word equity outside of a finance context five years ago. I mean, <laughs> right. Literally nobody even heard of it. I was just a, did, did a presentation. I asked everybody, raise your hand if you've heard the word equity five years ago, um, bracketing a finance contract. Not a single person, hundreds of people, nobody raised their hands. Yeah. Um, and so the point of the, that is to make those ideas and terms easily accessible so that people can understand those and, and they can use those to navigate the conversations. So, and they're brief, they're only around yeah, one minute. They're really nice. And the second, the, yeah. Thanks. The second thing is I want to forward some voices for people like um, the decolonization series that Dr. Bruce Gilly did. Right. That's a little more advanced of a series, um, but it's because it's niche. And so many people hear the word decolonization and so I want to have an expert come in. The, the series that I'm, I have other people like Nancy Rollman, who did a series on reporting on Antifa. And the purpose of that was just to show her insights for what she had for reporting on Antifa in Portland, Oregon. I'm in, I live in Portland, Oregon, but I think that that's generalizable to the whole. She talks about them being very young and trying to figure out, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. Uh, Lyle Asher's series that we have coming out. Jody Shaw, she's from. I have a few requests. She talks about speaking out. Uh, Lyle Asher series. I'm super excited about that. Bruce's series. I just asked him questions, Dr. Gilly. But Dr. Asher, those series are mapped out. Fifteen parts, five to six minutes each, explaining colleges of education, how to understand wokeness in the educational context, what it means when someone's, it's really remarkable what you can do about it. And the final series is amazing. It's from a very, very good friend of mine. I, I'm on the National Progress Alliance, and he's a board member on that. And he's uh, Conor McGregor's coach's coach. His name is Matt Thornton. He has a book coming out on violence from Pitchstone Press. And that's about how to deal with violence, uh, how to deal with specifically multiple attackers, BLM, Antifa, some of the modern malignancies that we see today in, in our streets. Um, so that series is that's, I mean, he's the most truly straight talking blunt person because uh, he has his own business. He's not held hostage to anybody. It's an amazing, it's amazing, truly amazing series. So anyway, but the point of all of that, now that I've explained it, the point of all of that is to give people tools who are not immersed in this. So you want to learn about well, what is it like to report on Antifa? Well, Nancy Rollman's videos, or what should I do if I'm, I think Matt's book is called The Gift of Violence. You know, uh, what kind of relationship should I have if I'm attacked, if people try to rape me, and particularly in the context of political or street violence. It's amazing stuff. I, it, again, I'm, to me, you're, um, and I think I, when you resign, when did you resign? About last summer? September 8th, it was the best, one of the best days of my life since the birth of my, my son and the adoption of my daughter. Yeah. And I know I, and we talked, I don't know, a couple months after that. And in, so it's been a few months since we agreed to do this and have you come on. And I was just wondering, like, how has it felt to kind of be liberated oh, from that? You oh know, and where you're at? Because it seems, I, it seems oh. like you've got some steam going. It just seems like you're getting your groove and the content that's coming out and everything else. I'm, I'm really excited to see what you're going to do with all this. Freedom. It's so wonderful. So wonderful. It felt never felt better. And then when I um, somebody emailed me the new rules about that are going in at my old university, <laughs> I won't mention them. And they are the National Association of Scholars will be publishing something about these rules about it. And it's just a, the most deranged. I mean, it's just it's just so crazy. I mean, it's just so obviously 
lunatic. Yeah. The race consciousness, race essentialism, race identity politics coming out of the university right now. I'm just so happy. I'm so relieved. I have almost no stress anymore, like zero stress. Um, and I'm just, I, I just, I, I cannot possibly tell you how good that felt. And I, I initially, um, before I resigned, I was feeling a little guilty. Mm-hmm. I knew from my conscience, I couldn't stay there. I mean, it was, I couldn't participate in something that was just so um, grotesque morally. Um, but I, I did feel guilty to be frank with you because I felt that, you know, a lot of students came to me specifically mm-hmm. and who would they go to? Like they would have nobody else really, or there were people, but they're too terrified to say anything because of the culture that that was created. So um, that, that was the only, to me has been the only thing that I'm like, Oh, I feel bad. Yeah, I understand. I'm telling you, my life has been, I mean, I just can't even tell. And that's the thing. It's like, I'll be invited to all these places. People like, Oh, we're so happy to, have you, or we're so excited. And I'll be like, wow, that's amazing. Like, that's exactly the opposite of what I had for years. I know, and right. I know. And it was just, it was almost jarring to me. People were so, oh, thank you. I can't tell you how happy I am. I'm like, wow. So yeah. And I'm, I can't possibly tell you it was the most wonderful decision. And I remember I used to wake up, I literally woke up happy. Like mm-hmm. my own happiness would wake me up in the middle of the night. Nice. Uh, so I feel wonderful. Well, I, I really, I, I, yeah, go ahead. It's just coming through in your work is all I wanted to say. I mean, again, I've, I've, I've only briefly known you. I've had that one conversation with you prior. And of course I've talking with brother and Het or Het, Heather and Brett, they um, said so many wonderful things about you. And, but I just see a difference in you, even in that, those, the short snippets of time that I've, that oh, I've interacted cool. with you and it's coming out in your work. And what I appreciate it is, is that it does reclaim the language. And I think a large part of this is that I think intentionally some of this stuff that it's the language is highfalutin, it's complicated, I yeah, think yeah. on purpose for a lot of, you know, and this kind of no, takes, takes it back. And I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Dan Dennett has a famous story that he said when we had a conversation about Michel Foucault, why do you write stuff that nobody can understand? You realize that. And Foucault basically said, if, um, excuse me, in, in French, if you um, if you don't write something that twenty that uh, at least twenty five percent of it is unintelligible, I'm paraphrasing here. Nobody will take you seriously. Uh, but I wanted to go back to what you said before. So I, the other thing that I've noticed is from what my um, family member and people tell me is that I'm just a much nicer person <laughs> to be around right now. <laughs> I'm nice. not on edge and I'm not I'm not yeah. stressed all the time. Yeah. Uh, but more important than that, it's not just about a critique of something. It's, you know, I'm trying to build things. I'm trying to make things. I'm trying to make the University of Austin a success so people will have a legitimate um, alternative that they can go where they won't be brainwashed, right? They can go and they can ask real questions and that they won't be punished if they don't toe the, the line. There is no line. It's, you know, there's, it's, you know, what's the reasoning behind that? And I think... And I think it's important. I look at people who build things. It's really hard to build something, right? It's, oh, yeah. it's really easy to rip a statue down or assault somebody, you know, assault a cop and call him a racist, you know, even if you don't even know the guy. It's really hard to build something. And I think that, that, um, I think it's so important to build things, oh especially God, yeah. now, and to give people alternatives. Because there are no alternatives at the moment to the current madness. 
that's overtaken the universities. And a whole generation of people has now, even more than that, a, whole, a generation and a half of people have been indoctrinated by ideological maniacs. It's so true. It's easy, like you said, it's easy to tear things down. It's hard to build something. It's easy, it's easy to be against something, but what do you really stand for? And I don't even see, you know, what do you stand for? Right. And, yeah, most- and, and here should always be the answer to that. There's really only one answer to that. And that's truth. Truth. That's right. Everything Absolutely. Everything else is arbitrary. I stand for what's true. Well, then the question becomes, how, how do you figure out what's true? Is it your personal feelings about something? Is it what everybody in the society believes? Is it what tradition has told you? Is it some kind of revelation, a supernatural entity speaking to you? But as long as truth is the North Star of the institution, you'll be fine. But truth is not the North Star mm-hmm. of our institution. It's 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 from Paulo Freire's uh, work, you know, cr- developing a critical consciousness. It's teaching to overthrow, overcome oppression, teaching justice, or what have you. But the fact is that that's those are arbitrary. And there's something I, I just gave a talk uh, that should be online pr- pretty soon about. You know, the president of Portland State University has said that racial justice is the highest priority of the institution. <laughs> What really? Like of a public institution? Now, if, if you're Bob Jones University and you want to say that promoting Christian values is the highest mission, I wouldn't even call it a university. I'd call it more of a seminary, what have you. That's different. But but that's astonishing. And I think what's interesting is I have asked repeatedly for people to have a conversation with me, and I'm even giving them the questions, and almost exclusively on the left. I've asked, should racial, here's the question. Nobody will, I gave up a few months ago, but after he said that, I kept going out, putting tweets out, inviting people to talk to me. Nobody on the left wants to talk about it. Should racial justice be the highest priority of an institution? There's no gotchas. Yeah. Giving you the question. Let's have that. Not even a debate. So you don't have to worry about losing. Nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah, well, if if you answer in the affirmative of that, that's that's the thing. If you if you really sit down and think about that, and you take it to its foregone conclusion, it really starts to, you know, the, the ugly truth starts to hit you in the face about well, if that's the case, then I need to then I need if this guy speaks out or speaks that's not in line with that, then he needs to be punished, and that's crazy. Okay, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Maybe they're right though. Maybe it should be the highest priority of an institution, but the only way to figure that out. There's only one way to figure that out, and it would have to be to engage people who think it's not. That's right. There's no other way to figure that out because then you'd have to resort to something that's arbitrary. Well, my feelings tell me. Well, what if you feel differently on Tuesday than you do Thursday? Or what if you had a fight with your spouse and then you're in a bad mood? And they, or revelation. Well, what if someone else has a different revelation? So the only way to figure that out is to engage in some kind of dialect. And that's the key. And that's back what gets missed. That's back to right. Socrates. That's the key. Right. You're absolutely right. Like if, if that is the case, if we're going to answer that, then we need to have an honest conversation about it. Correct. We need to have an honest conversation. I'll even have a dishonest conversation. I just, we need some kind of a conversation. <laughs> <to> <laughs> they, no conversation is happening. Right? But we're having no conversation right now. Yeah. And so yeah. The, the other thing is that that deprives, forget about the taxpayer for a minute, that just deprives people that deprive students of an education. Mm -hmm. So you think you're giving students an education, but you're not, you're giving them an indoctrination. You're giving them an indoctrination into values that literally nobody ever heard of five years ago. Well, I shouldn't say literally, I mean, apart from fringe sections of the academy, nobody, 
nobody, certainly nobody in the public heard of these ideas. You know, five microaggressions, trigger warnings, safe spaces, and all that such. Those are manifestations of a larger ideology of, you know, the, the holy trinity of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And then, but the larger point is anybody who questions that now, cultural appropriation, you're suddenly a bad person. Like when really, like for thousands of years, no, it's never been a problem. And all of a sudden now in the last five years, not only is it a problem, but it's kind of held up as one of the highest moral virtues. And, and you don't, and not only do you not want to talk about it, you want to punish other people who want to talk about it by deplatforming them. So you don't even want them to talk about it. I'm telling you, it is a recipe. It yeah. is like a death spiral. It it's is. I mean, if you kill a civilization, if you still, if you study history, that's what's so scary and frustrating is because we know how this, the story ends and it, and it doesn't end with anything, but a lot of despair and, and unfortunately, um, well, it ends in violence and violence no, and death conversation. There's what, how else is it could it possibly end? Yeah. It, it doesn't end well. <laughs> it doesn't end right. well. And that's the other thing is we know in the last two chapters of Helen Pluckrose's cynical theories, we know exactly what the solution is. So the solution is, is, is liberalism. I mean, it's not a mystery what the solution is. Yeah. What, liberalism you, broadly, broadly construed enlightenment liberalism. Yeah. Like, yeah. The classical liberalism that, that made this country great, right? Free, free inquiry, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of due process is a big All one. Of that. All of it. And we're afraid of so, it. I have to jet pretty yep, soon. Peter, I yeah, I was going to wrap this up. I, I I could talk to you for hours. I, I This was so fun and enlightening for me. And, oh, and I'm, I'm glad to, um, whatever you're doing and whatever war you're fighting, consider me a an ally and you're always have Thank a, a you. welcome home here on this show. And I hope that we can continue the conversation. I'm anxious to see what's going on. I'll try to get more involved with stuff you're doing and hopefully our paths will, will continue to cross. Thank you. So here's what's going on. So I have a, uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Peter Bogosian, P E T E R B O G H O S S I N. I just started a getter account. I don't even know how that's pronounced, but, uh, G E T T R. Yeah. I opened one up today. Taking off of, of Twitter. They're just starting to ban people who have certain ideas, but I, as a rule, I don't talk about vaccination. Um, we could talk about why that is later, uh, on our next podcast. Uh, so I have the Substack. I have the university tour going on. There's the Indiegogo set up for that. I have a, um, God, I have so much stuff going on. It's hard to even. So I have those videos. If you want to help, you know, find those videos that you think explain things well and just, you know, promote them on social media. I make no money for them. It's, the channel is not monetized. Um, all Every single penny I do make from the Substack goes back to the nonprofit till we can make more videos. So nobody's, you know, grifting, getting rich off of this. We're all trying to move the needle on a deranged cultural phenomenon, which is sinking us into oblivion. So anyway, Richard, I appreciate you. I love it. I have links to all this on the show. Peter, thanks for coming on the show and and, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Appreciate that. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dosa Leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. 
I look forward to the next time we work together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.